0: Katie Rich and I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With Rebecca Ford. Hello. And with David Canfield. Hi. Hello, everybody. We have as always, a lot to talk about. We've got some awards news, some really nitty-gritty eligibility stuff that, of course, we care deeply about. We've got some TV to talk about. We've got a preview of the new season of our other podcast still watching. Uh, And we've got, at the end of the show, an interview that Richie did. (laughs) Richie.
3: (laughs) Richie Creeps.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that is going to be your married name when you're going to marry Mickey Creeps and take her name, I assume. Or it's
1: the Frost Nixon, you know, Richie (laughs) slash (laughs) Creeps.
0: Yeah, that is how I've, like, labeled that. Audio file. Uh, Richard talked to Vicky Creeps, star of Bergman Island, and we adore her, as you can tell. So we'll hear more about that later. Um, but first, as I said, nitty gritty Oscar stuff that we care deeply about. Um, the news came out yesterday that Katrina Bell and Jamie Dornan will both compete in the supporting categories for Belfast, which, as far as any of us can say, is. Probably the best picture frontrunner at this point by default for having won the TIFF Audience Award and being a big crowd pleaser. Um, so the lead, Jude Hill, is the, the child. Like, he will be the only um, lead acting contender from that film. You've got Judy Dench and Karen Hines also in supporting roles. Um, to me, this seems like a wise move. Katrina Balf and Jamie Dornan are both famous but not, like, super-duper famous. And they can plausibly be seen as supporting players to the child who is the lead. Does this make sense to you guys, too? Definitely.
5: Yes. Yeah. I also yeah. think they're supporting. I also think they're supporting roles, and it's it's kind of refreshing when the lead of the film, who's a child, actually goes lead, which doesn't yeah. happen very often. <laughs> <laughs> That's and true. Go supporting when they are supporting.
4: I totally agree. It is nice when people actually go in the categories that. Uh, make the most sense, um, which doesn't always happen. But uh, you know, I think it's it's really tough when a kid is the lead because you know it's so rare for a kid to be nominated. So you're kind of writing off the the lead category nominations that way. But um, I do think Jamie and Katrina have a better chance being in the supporting groups, and they really are supporting. And and Jamie especially is is. Is not in the whole movie because of his character storyline. So to mm-hmm. me, it makes a lot of a lot of sense. And I, and I think when you think of like Lion, maybe you know um, Patel mm. and Kidman both went supporting, and that, that also made the most sense to me.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think that like running supporting, like I think now like especially both like has a really good chance of getting the nomination. You know, like mm-hmm. if when they when there was talk about running her an actress, it was like that's a big swing for. I mean, the performance is great, but like screen time wise. Um, but now it's like, I mean, probably almost definitely in. And I don't know, maybe yeah, I think she's a stronger contender.
0: Yeah, especially for how beloved that movie seems to be at this point. And, you know, all credit to Jude Hill, like the best actor race is pretty dang crowded at this point. So I'm not sure how likely that would be. And for Jamie Dornan, I think you've got some showier performances to work with in supporting actor than in um, supporting actress. Um and people like I mean people love both of them like Jamie Dornan had one his one big franchise Katrina Balfe has hers so I think they both have a lot going in their favor to get their first nominations
4: in for in each of these categories do we think this affects um, like Judy Dench's chances having another supporting actor and actress in the category I do
5: think it does um, I, I think she was probably a, a safe name check option for that movie in that category especially because it's a little shapeless right now a lot of maybe contenders but I think with Balfe all but assured at least to get in and kind of checking that Belfast spot off. It's going to be tough because Judy Dench doesn't have a ton to do in the movie and um, I think people might feel more comfortable (laughs) leaving her off their ballots even if they're fans of the movie.
1: I think an interesting thing about this year's Oscar race as it pertains to this film is that unlike in years past, they've combined the best Judy and best Jude categories. So potentially (laughs) two stars from the same film will be competing against each other.
0: Uh, I mean, I will note that We've in the last couple of years, we've seen a good bit of two supporting actors nominated for the same movie. Uh, weirdly, last year, Lakeith Sanfield and Daniel Kaluuya, both uh, supporting for in and Black Messiah. Uh, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci for The Irishman and Sam Rockwell and um, Woody Harrelson for Three Billboards. And in two of those cases, one of those pairs of people won. So maybe it's not seen as as much of a detriment as it used to be. And I think if you're going to make a case like you're going to vote for Katrina Balfe or Judy Dench if they're both dominated, like it's pretty clear that Katrina Balf would be the one you would you would pick of those two, I think. Yeah. Although I did enjoy the moment in No Time to Die where there's a large oil painting of Judy Dench on the wall. Just like remember that she's there. So I don't know if that's part of her Oscar campaign here, but it, uh, it really got me.
1: I, I want to be the London art student who was commissioned to do that for, for that film.
0: <laughs> I wonder who has that painting now. Like that's this. Uh, maybe I'll report on this and see what I can find. Um, OK, well, back into news about the season ahead. Uh, there was a report in Deadline on Monday this week that the Hollywood Foreign Press is planning to hand out Golden Globe Awards this year. Um, they made news a week or two ago where they're adding new members and, you know, trying to really improve their pretty dire stats about inclusivity. But the question remains of who wants these awards at this point. You know, they're they're not going to be on NBC no matter what. I think widely we all assume that the Globes would be in a rebuilding year, but perhaps that they see, you know, their value is in. handing out awards so they have to keep doing it Um, but do you guys think that this is actually going to happen we were talking before we started recording about how you might have to submit yourself to get a golden globe and who is actually going to willingly put themselves up for these awards what does this feel
4: doomed to to any of you I think it's so weird <laughs> <laughs> because it, it's funny. David and I had heard about this a couple of weeks ago and I started asking some publicists about it and a lot of them had not heard this rumor and and were just very confused how that would work because, yes, traditionally you have to submit your films to be considered. And are, is, it, is the HFPA going to make them submit? Because a lot of reps were like, uh, they're a little, um, you know, too uh, – we don't really want to be associated with them this year, so we wouldn't submit – Or is the HFPA just going to go rogue and just kind of pick from the films that played this year? It's just, it's really crazy to me that they've decided to do this. But I understand they want to, you know, remain relevant, but I'm not sure this is the way to do it.
1: Well, and the interesting thing about that, we were talking about this uh, before we started recording, but like, you know, the New York Film Critics Circle, which I'm a member of, like, we don't have submission. We have eligibility requirements in terms of release that have, of course, been changed some during the pandemic. Um, But like, basically, we are just voting on what we've sort of received, what we've sort of collected ourselves, you know. But to that end, publicists will schedule screenings before our voting day to make sure that we see movies, even if they're not out toward, you know, till Christmas or New Year's or whatever. Um, so it works well enough. There are some things that miss, like I think we haven't been able to vote on a Star Wars film as long as I've been there, which, you know, probably wouldn't have won, but whatever. <laughs> but in the HFPA's case, if they are, you know, gleaning from just what they're able to see. I don't think publicists are even going to be scheduling screenings for them, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's like if when 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 are they going to vote? I mean, it would have to be significantly into the new year, right, in order to have seen everything that would qualify as a 2021 movie.
5: Yeah, especially like a West Side story which would ostensibly be right up their alley um, and and Mm -hmm. in a a safe musical space where it could get a nice boost. Um, That's not coming out until the end of the year. Disney does not uh, do aggressive uh, advanced screening. So that's a a good example of a movie that would not, you know, by default be on their radar, assuming they don't get to see it. And, And I think more broadly, the likeliest scenario is that studios do put the movies forward as eligible and, they release their slate of nominees, and you know they get written up, and then that's kind of the end of it. Most strategists will tell you that there's not much value to a Golden Globe outside of the televised aspect of it and the mm-hmm. actual PR <laughs> boost that a win, mm-hmm. like say for Andrew Day last year, can get. Um, so in this case, I just don't know what it serves them to do it, except to you know probably irk some people. <laughs> in the industry and, and like, keep their streak going. But I don't think it's a benefit to the HFPA at all.
0: It makes me think of the year that the writer's strike canceled the Golden Globes and they had basically yeah, a exactly. press conference on Entertainment Tonight, I think. And, like, those awards may or may not, may as well have not happened. Like, they just didn't really factor right. into the race at all. I think someone pointed out that, like, John Hamm won – like he won his only major award before he finally won that Emmy for Mad Men, but like no one remembered that that even happened. <laughs> Poor John Hamm. Um, so like I guess they can do it. It's like a kind of a tree falls in the forest thing, right? If if everyone chooses to ignore it, then it won't have any impact one way or another. Yeah. So we actually got some listener requests from you guys. Uh, as I say, when you text us on subtext, we read them and we will text back sometimes. And we got some requests to talk about the potential looming IATSE strike, um, which is the union that represents a lot of people who work in below the line capacities on film sets. And what I think anyone who works on film sets will tell you, they are the people who make it work. So, you know, whereas in the writer's strike that we remember from 15 years ago or so, there were kind of workarounds. If, if these people go on strike, these sets will shut down completely. And our colleague, Sonia Saraya, who you'll hear from later talking about Succession and Joy Press, have written a lot about it. Sonia wrote a piece about the Instagram account IA Stories, which has some really harrowing accounts of what these people have been experiencing on sets. Um, we don't know, obviously, like what is going to happen. They, the members voted to authorize a strike, but there, no strike has happened yet. But just as people who observe this industry and kind of follow what happened, um, how seismic do we think this could be if they do, in fact,
4: go on strike? I think it could be huge like i mean it's unprecedented right they've never been on strike before and and as you mentioned the writers strike was i mean it changed the industry forever but but it was no offense to writers around the world but it was just the writers yeah. and so there were <laughs> workarounds where this is like all below the line um you know the the people who really make productions happen and the production would stop without them so uh the, this could be ma- i think we're on day eight or so of negotiations and, and things could change, you know, before this podcast even airs. But mm-hmm. um, this would be, I think, massive, massively affecting Hollywood uh, to a standstill.
1: I, I think that's something that's really interesting reading about what IATSE is looking to get in these new contracts is how closely it links to, you know, people at a free low-life factory uh, or in any sort of kind of work that is not anywhere near the sort of supposed glamour of Hollywood. You know, mm-hmm. I think when there's a SAG question of a SAG strike or even a writer's guild, it's like, well, but those are pampered people. They're 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 you know negotiating over pennies for residuals or whatever. And that stuff does have a, a substantive effect because it it actually does contribute to this. And th- these are people who are working crazy hours, are injuring themselves, you know, um, in in unsafe conditions or at least working late enough that they're driving home unsafely. And and so these are labor issues that affect millions and millions and millions and millions of Americans. We're just talking about the sixty thousand or so people who are in these this union. But it is as much of a American labor story as it is a Hollywood one. And maybe the two are kind of are you can't even actually separate the two. They are the same thing. It just now we're we're at least more people are, are able to see that like it's not all gowns and red carpets and, you know, big, looming, large celebrities on, on movie screens, it's a lot of grunt work that has not been uh, respected and treated fairly for, you know, a long time.
5: Yeah, it's quite a contrast from even if you agree with Scarlett Johansson's claim, um, but the nature of, you know, a A-list actress arguing over millions um, is different <laughs> to an to an average reader and just into the industry as well compared to crew members who have been dealing with these kinds of um, discrepancies for a really long time.
2: Yeah,
0: it's interesting um, reading this article that Joy Press wrote. She would talk to some of the people who are involved in the potential strike, and she talked to um, Marissa Shipley, who is an art department and set decoration coordinator, and she's the vice president of um, Local 871, which is a uh, Chapter of the union. And she said, We're groomed into the expectation of the industry that you're going to have to work for free and the hours are going to be ridiculous, but it becomes like self harm in a way. And what she pointed out is that the pandemic shutdown really gave people a lot of opportunities to rethink that and think, Oh, I have a break. Like, is this how I want to live my life? Which I think is something we're linking to a lot of the work shortages around the country. And like you're saying, Richard, like labor issues in other industries. And so it's all just part of the same thing where. People buy into this idea that this is how work should be, and then huge shifts happen in the world and allow you to rethink it. Um, And I think reading some of the stories on the Instagram account especially, it's really hard not to agree with them that something has to change.
1: For the three of you, does the whole thing about like starting in a difficult industry and you're just supposed to accept what you can get and not complain, does that sound familiar at all? To... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the thing is there are parallels to every industry as cushy or not as it is, you know, like yeah. how many times as young people in media were we told like, don't complain, just take this shitty salary and, you know, write 10 posts a day, or at least I was, you know, and
0: yeah, um, yeah
1: absolutely. but you, you kind of I mean, I bought into it because it was like, yeah, but like the true payment is being able to like have my byline out there or whatever, you know, uh, but there's actual is substantive stuff that like, is being denied, uh, you know, people who are agitating for, you know, better labor practices. And I think it's great that it's being put out there in such a public way, it would be the largest, one of the largest work stoppages ever, I think, in America, Mm -hmm. um, were it to happen. Um, Though, interestingly, I was reading something in The Hollywood Reporter about certain it's it, this is all contingent on on like the basic agreement. I I believe there there are two agreements that are sort of up for that are that the contracts have expired for, but there's one for pay cable. So HBO, Star, Cinemax, Showtime. It's potential that those workers under those contracts wouldn't stop working, nor would some other facet of the industry i forget but people from iotsi are looking at those and being like are there workarounds in this is this actually a pay cable show that's get you know that's being treated fairly in the same way that they're auditing all the streaming stuff you know like like are there, how many workarounds and loopholes are being employed here um and if maybe if they find enough everyone would go on strike regardless of which agreement they're under i guess
0: yeah. And something that's really shocking to me is that they they had an agreement from 2009 that gave streamers essentially a discount uh, in terms of how much they pay crew members. And now they're, the streamers are Apple and Amazon and Netflix and like the mm-hmm. most profitable companies on the planet. And they basically say they should all pay industry standard wages to the professionals who crew their productions. And again, that's something that you read and you're like, yeah,
4: that feels like the only only illogical thing to do. It's interesting because the writer's strike was also sort of came to a head because of streaming as well. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they weren't getting um, the right pay on streaming. It feels like as as our streaming industry continues to change, it really does affect uh, these strikes. And I feel the echo of that on this conversation okay. as well. And yeah. just how the
5: pandemic has accelerated everything. Um, it's pretty clear. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and in just a few short years, you can't... I mean, I know that the, the term... It's a term of art that has a specific meaning, but like, can we really call streamers new media, which yeah, is the hey. agreement that they're under? You know, it's like it is yeah. just media. And and we just have to rethink this and this whole kind of canard that that because it's Internet, it's like not traditional. It's it's not re- There's not revenue there in the same way. You know, it's kind of the way that people talked. I mean, I can't confirm this, but I, I know at least one actor who knows a lot about this, who was saying that, like, the whole thing of Quibi was in essence to set up to get circumvent union rules, yeah. Because I you it was like top tier content that was, but but because it's only seven minutes, it it qualifies as a different thing. So you have to you only have to pay X, Y, and Z amounts versus A, B, C amounts and. Um, that the streamers keep coming up in these kind of labor con- discussions, be it from writers and actors and about residuals, and now this. It's like there's a common denominator here. <laughs> Not that those the traditional studios are doing much better, obviously, but it is interesting that these sort of techie new enterprises are, are seeming to be the ones that like have created um, the most like actionable friction recently.
0: Yeah. And with the writer's strike, uh, you know, from what I remember from a while ago is a lot about, you know, how like percentage of gross and, you know, the way that writers get paid can be really complicated in these contracts. And with uh, IATSE, they're asking for bathroom breaks and enough time to sleep mm-hmm. but be- between leaving set and coming back onto it. So it's, it's very tangible. Um, and it makes me think of when, you know, the Amazon warehouse workers were potentially unionizing. It's another thing where you're looking at the working conditions that it feels very easy to understand and um, easy to rally behind, which I, th- I think is what we're ha- seeing happen so far. Like there, there are some big, you know, actors and uh, creators who are getting behind them. And it seems like they would have support if they went on strike, though you never know because these things can surprise you. Okay, so let's move into the present. I uh, happily put on our lineup a title that, I, I mean, we don't talk about, children aimed or teen shows too often on this show. And in terms of awards eligibility, I don't really know what we can get into. But I just had to talk about The Babysitter's Club, which came uh, back for its second season on Netflix this week. Um, Richard, you and I, I know that you and I are extremely caught up on it because we talk about it all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, our colleague, Hillary Buses, who couldn't make it today, uh, is also a huge fan and we will have a piece up this week interviewing the actress who plays Mallory, who is new this season, or I guess maybe it showed up briefly last season. Um, I find it hard to put into words why I love The Babysitter's Club so much. I I read all the books as a kid. It's very deeply embedded in my um, you know, brain as a reader and how I think about myself. Um, but clearly, you know, Richard, I think you had a lot less exposure to those books, um, maybe a little bit via your sister, but you've also been really taken by it, right?
1: I, was most a lot of Babysitter's Club lore through my older sister, I was unaware until very recently about the cable TV series that existed in 1990 because we didn't have cable then. Mm. Um, but I did see the movie with Larissa Olinick and some, uh, I think, Skylar Fisk, daughter of um, Sissy Spacek is in it, I believe. And we, my sister and I, you know, dutifully went to go see that opening weekend uh, or were taken to go see it. And um, my sister was like, eh, they, they, they didn't get it right. So for years I've wondered what is the right version, right? Short of reading the books, which I I didn't read the Babysitter's Club books. I did read Sweet Valley High because those seemed a little bit like sexier. Oh, those are but, definitely juicier. Yeah. So watching this show uh, the, in the first season, which I reviewed for VF, You know, it was nice to see the thing that my sister had adored as a kid kind of, you know, mounted well in considered form on screen. But even if I hadn't known anything about the the property and hadn't had that sort of familial kind of, you know, allegiance to the series, it's just very well-made kids television because it takes its kids seriously but doesn't try to age them up or try to make them too precocious or snarky or pop culture referency it's just a very earnest sweet kind of modest show about what it can be like to be an awkward tween years where some of your friends are a little you know ahead of you in terms of like having crushes on people or exploring stuff about their identity where you're a little bit more like rooted in kid stuff but they are too in some degree you know it's it's about that kind of great and scary and in, in hindsight kind of profound time in your life when you're sort of caught between ages. And I think that's a really delicate thing to portray well on television. And this show does. And I've seen all of season two as a few, Katie. Um, and I think they continue that and ex- while also expanding um, both in cast and sort of scope uh, what the show is.
0: Yeah, and they update it in all these ways that could feel really kind of like box-checking. Like, you know, Dawn was like in the book, she's like this blonde California girl. And in this one, she's Latina. And in the first season, you've got Marianne like babysitting a a trans girl and kind of learning about her life. Like there's all these things that feel current. Like this season, there's a TikTok star who does these unboxing videos. But it all roots back to just like really universal emotional stories that feel like they would have belonged in the original books. Like it's not throwing it in there for the sake of being current. It's like making it feel present but reminding you that the present is really not that different from the past because kids are going through the same thing over and over again and like my kind of glib way of putting it's just like it makes me feel how Ted Lasso makes a lot of people feel it's just like I want everyone to be nice to each other and to learn and to like, express kindness in all things and because Baby Babysitter's Club is about children and not adults I think it gets to do that in a way that um, doesn't have to be complicated There don't have to be villains you just get to to learn and grow
1: Yes, and I think that the way the show weaves in certain contemporary social discourses um, so fluidly and seamlessly and organically is credit to show creator Rachel Schuckert, who just she and her her writing staff have found a way to not be didactic and not be like indicating toward like, hey, this is the special episode about blank social issue. They just Mm -hmm. kind of introduce it gently and gracefully in a way that... um, reminds the viewer, hopefully, that, like, this is real life. These issues are existent in real life. Even if you're not the babysitter of a trans kid, like, someone else is, most likely, Mm -hmm. you know, and or definitely is. And these are not sort of theoretical terms to be debated online um, that have no application to real life. Um, And I think that the show is really wise about how it imparts that wisdom to, hopefully, its young viewers, who I think the show is definitely aimed at kids, Um, But there are definitely going to be adults watching, either parents, guardians, or people like us, Katie, who (laughs) – I don't know if your kids are watching this show with you, but – um, I'm certainly watching it alone and I'm, and I'm getting a lot out of it. I should also say to the listener, though, that Katie has not revealed a major bias about this project, <laughs> which is that the actress who plays Christy, Sophie Grace, who's wonderful, is basically little Katie Rich. And it, you, Everyone should watch this, at least an episode, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm very much right.
0: I, I also feel like people watch the show and like I tell them that I identify with Christy reading the books as you know the bossy one who organizes everyone and wants everyone to follow her plan. It's like, oh no, I get it. I see how you became who you are. <laughs> It all it all adds up. So the fact that uh, that you told me I look like her is just a deep honor. Um, David and Rebecca, have we sold you on this children's show that you and your busy lives just should absolutely make time for, even if you don't think you have time for it?
5: I did some catch-up in the last few days. And oh, my God. I'm so glad. I, I am a huge fan of The Babysitter's Club. Fun fact. <laughs> <laughs> Newly. Um, no, I think one thing that I also really love about it, which is pretty rare for a Netflix series, is the very tightly, thoughtfully, fully constructed episodes and how they have a nice, neat resolution. And um, you kind of feel like you get a whole meal with each episode, even mm-hmm. though um, it's, <laughs> it, it has a nice, very it is a neatness to it, but um, it's something I appreciated because a lot of times there's just, the binge model does not allow for that. And this show seems to always leave you satisfied either to keep going or to just kind of do a one-off, which is a nice departure
4: from the model.
0: Yeah, it'd be a very good thing to just watch weekly if you wanted to schedule it out that way because every story
4: kind of picks up anew again. I haven't seen it yet, but now I'm definitely going to watch it just to see – the little Katie Rich character. <laughs> yeah, oh, it, it,
1: you're you're going to gasp.
0: <laughs> I'll wait. I'll do next week's episode in a director's chair with a, with a baseball cap on just to really uh, keep it going. Um, all right, let's stick with television for a little bit longer and jump uh, into the past, I guess. Richard, you and I got on the line with Sonia Soraya, who will be uh, hosting the new season of Still Watching With You about Succession, which is back this Sunday. Um, we have seen... An episode, we've talked about an episode that will be on the Still Watching feed if you're not subscribed to it already. Um, So let's just, uh, let's preview Succession a little bit without spoilers uh, and get a a taste of what the new Still Watching season will be like. Well, you've probably just heard me throw to myself uh, for this segment of this week's Little Gold Men because we wanted to do a special uh, quick thing to talk about Succession, which is coming back to HBO this Sunday, October 17th, and is also the subject of the new season of Still Watching. So I'm here with Richard and with Sonia Soraya. Sonia, you were coming into the Still Watching family for this season to talk Succession. Um, Was this just the show you were born to talk about, the sad, rich, white people of your dreams?
3: (laughs) Yeah, obviously. I just wanted to spend as much time with them possible which (laughs) sounds perverse but is true (laughs) (laughs) well did you have the experience that i did
0: where like succession had been off the air since before the pandemic which basically feels like a thousand years ago and then you know picking up these screeners we're not going to spoil anything on this but you know going getting back into a show with the roys i was like
3: ah thank god Oh, for sure. It's like uh, taking like a long drink of water after after being parched in the desert. It just feels really good to be back in the tone and to be back in their like extremely heightened drama. Um, Richard, for again, we don't want to spoil anything. And uh, if you want to hear us
0: talk more about the first episode of Succession, of course, you can listen to Still Watching later this week. Um, but for people who have been anticipating this for so long, do you feel like it's living up to these expectations we put on it?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and um, you know, just to up the expectations, Sonia and I have actually choreographed an uh, intricate ballet to the theme song mm. that we will be um, putting on a video for the Patreon. We're, we're starting a Patreon for still watching, obviously. Um, <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> so we're really excited to show you guys that we've been working really hard on it. Um, but yeah, no, I think expectations-wise, it really. Um, I, my worry, as my worry is with anything that becomes a phenomenon and then like has some time away and then comes back. Usually, it's a TV show. I worried that they would get self-aware. And that Mm -hmm. their jokes would be sort of more like for the fans and like meta commentary kind of thing. What I've seen thus far, it's still just a succession we know and love. uh, You know, and I think that's great. I don't think the show needs to become any more self aware than it already is.
0: And I think it's going to be really interesting to track as the season goes on what the post-Trump era succession looks like, which is maybe not a fair way to see it because they were supposed to go into production last year um, before the pandemic shut it down. So, you know, maybe this whole thing was written before the election was over. But it's just already a different way to look at this show about power brokers and about, you know, the uh, fictional version of Fox News. And I think I think it's going to change the way we see the show, even if it doesn't change the show itself. And I'm intrigued to see how that plays out this season.
1: So yeah, if people want to listen to that, that's on the Still Watching feed. Uh, the Succession podcast will drop um, Sunday nights after the episode ends on East Coast time. And there, will be, there might be a little confusion because we're also still doing uh, American Crime Story impeachment, but that'll be up Monday. So anything that appears on Still Watching feed on Sundays will be Succession and will be labeled as
3: such.
0: Yeah, I've already found a moment of uh, thematic overlap between characters on impeachment and succession, and I look forward to continuing to do that for for the for only for people who are listening to still watching probably, but for those of us who know, we know. <laughs> I'll, I'll reveal it on next week's episode, maybe. <laughs> um, Sonia, any any concluding succession thoughts? Anything you want to tease people about that's that's to come
3: on either still watching or the show itself? Well, I mean, there's obviously the ballet, um, but besides <laughs> that, no. I mean, I think that. The characters and the actors that are playing them are just, they're so strong. And even though it's been so long since I watched the second season, I found that they were all very familiar to me. And so it was really nice to kind of feel reunited with these people, even though they are all kind of terrible. And um, I, I do think that it's going to be interesting to see if my like appetite for them is different now that i am not like saturated in the trump media cycle um so yeah i'm just really excited to go along for the ride
0: yeah tom wansganza he he's eternal no no presidential administration will change the way i feel about tom so happy (laughs) to have him back um well like richard said subscribe to still watching if you're not already listen to succession and to impeachment and um we'll see you there ok, looking ahead to this weekend, we've got some new releases to talk about. And we want to talk about Bergman Island because we'll have uh, Richard's interview with Vicki Creeps. But first, I am excited to perhaps have a duel here on the show about the last duel, uh, which I have not seen, so I'm going to bow out of it pretty fast. Um but David and Rebecca, you guys saw it first. I think of anyone on staff and uh, came out with some strong opinions. And then Richard, your review, I think, reflected more of the New York belief. And I don't know why this is an East Coast, West Coast thing, but people in New York <laughs> who saw it seemed to be much more on board with Ridley Scott's uh, big, uh, old-timey action movie. Um, and so, Richard, people can read your review. So do you want to just kind of start by laying out uh, your reaction to The Last Duel?
1: Yeah, I mean, I had gone in very assuming based on everything I'd heard from people who'd seen it that it was going to be a complete mess and um I, I yeah and, and there is something that happens I think in sort of these New York screenings with a you know uh, the New York film people there's a kind of shared ethos sometimes about how to react to things and I think there's enough in the last duel that like seems self-consciously silly um and kind of over the top and and, you know in especially in terms of affleck's ben affleck's performance and matt damon's to some extent and and at least one cape flourish on the on behalf of adam driver how many many wigs there oh there's there's just everything a go-go everything's (laughs) happening on the head i mean beards (laughs) scars wigs it's just a lot um you know ben affleck has this platinum blonde caesar cut and a little like chin goatee thing and not even a goatee just like a i guess a big soul patch on his chin i don't know what the term is but um you know, So that was enough to kind of like make the movie feel like an interesting oddity. And it, it is certainly a different approach to heavy subject matter. I mean, this is a movie about whether or not a woman... I mean, it's not really about whether the, the, a woman's telling a truth about her rape, but whether she'll be believed. Um, and yet the movie is more focused on the men who give these kind of ridiculous performances in a way to kind of be like, aren't men the worst? We're on your side. We're still going to take center stage, but like we're going to do it (laughs) in a silly way that makes us look fools and you look better. I mean, the you in this case is Jodie Comer and her character. Um, And that's a really bizarre approach to this, I think. But in aggregate, I thought it kind of worked somehow because it was not what I was expecting and, you know, talking with um, Hillary about it when she was editing the piece with me, like would have been way too much if it was just all, you know, 100% serious, um, and probably would have been more sanctimonious or something coming from men. Um, So I don't know, I probably I'm not articulating this well, but it it just it, it, it was a very surprising movie. And I think that surprise can take can carry a movie a long way these days.
0: David and Rebecca, you guys were on board with the Jodie Jody Comer part, I think, even if the uh, some of the other parts of what Richard's talking about um, didn't work for you as well. I mean, do you think that she that she brings to this what we were kind of hoping she would, having seen her on Killing Eve? Like, is this a good jumping off point for her for maybe a,
4: a film career to come?
5: Uh, Rebecca, were you on, on board with the last part? <laughs> <laughs>
4: um, Jodie Comer is a great actress. And I think in the moments you get to see her, she proves that again and...
5: So very diplomatic.
4: (laughs) I do want to say, first of all, that I think the New York crew owes us a thank you because I have a running (laughs) theory that when someone tells you a movie isn't great... And then you go see that movie, you go in with such low expectations that you were always pleasantly surprised. Yes. So we yeah. set New York up to enjoy their screening. You are welcome, Richard.
1: <laughs> I, I think that's uh, absolutely true. And But the planes fly both ways, Rebecca. Sometimes we do that for you.
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> true. Fair. And it can work the other way if you say a film is great and then you go in with right. expectations that are too high. But... Um, you know, I think this movie. First of all, the LA screening had no laughter, and and I don't think anyone in our our no joy, was, <laughs> no joy <laughs> was and and you know maybe that is part of it is how you experience a film of course but you know it just it really didn't work for me. I felt like, especially as a woman, you know from your own life that men see things you know, in a way that puts them at no, no offense, not you two, because you are very (laughs) wonderful. You're the good, you're the good ones. Not all. You're the good guys, but, (laughs) but all women have experienced, uh, you know, living in a world where men put themselves at the center and see things their way. And it's very different for a woman. So I didn't need to see that in three different versions, uh, Mm. of a movie and especially to see a rape scene, um, you know, twice was, was not an experience I was, uh, really into so you know this movie wasn't for me i do think ben affleck seemed to be having a lot of fun with his role and did a good job and and jody's great but you know i it this wasn't this wasn't for me
5: (laughs) i know i think for me it was just the structure really confounded me to rebecca's point it it was a situation where you basically yield an hour and a half to the men for their sometimes ridiculous sometimes sort of incredibly self-serious accounts before getting to her truth um i watched some interviews with ridley scott yesterday number one because i love watching interviews with ridley scott and number two because um i was just curious for how he described getting to that last third and and one of the interviewers said to him that like a friend had texted um which of the three accounts did you believe and he he just kind of looks at the interview and goes how stupid are they and it's like it's like yes but also you do ask uh, a viewer to sit through and you know an enormous amount of screen time that is kind of undone by the last act. And, and it is correct that her perspective is presented very clearly as the accurate one, most accurate one, I should say. and um, that she gets that kind of agency at the end. But it felt to me incredibly bizarre to have men get to tell their stories and have their perspectives, centered for so long when the whole point of the movie is that they're not <laughs> um, mm. reliable or accurate and, and 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 i think to rebecca's point as well just having that rape having playing it over and over again um it just felt like it undercut what it was trying to be and i i do get the sort of the more for lack of a better word campy aspects of the film that could be appreciated but i i really struggled with just the whole intent and conceit of it.
1: Something I wrote about in my review is that, like, there is definitely throughout the film a sense of having cake and eating it too, you know, like, like we get to be these awful men and have fun doing that, but we also, but we're making a point, you know, and I thought the attempt to do that was interesting enough to sustain the movie. I don't know if it's like morally successful or, or if it's, if it really is serving the ultimate point, it's trying to make very well. And I think the triptych structure, it sort of makes sense when you think really granularly about what this film specifically wanted to do. But if you zoom out just a little bit, it's like the two to one imbalance here in terms of men's stories and a woman's story. It's like that structurally doesn't really make any sense. And and I think that maybe if it had been half and half or something, I don't know, something different than what it is, or if they placed her story. I, I mean, it wouldn't work and it only works if her stories last, I guess, but yeah. yeah, it's, it's such a strange movie. And I think ultimately that's what I was taken by was how strange it was um, because <laughs> mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting that from a big studio movie that was
5: clumsily trying to address, you know, a pertinent issue uh, from yeah. today. I kind of sidestepped your question, Katie, about Jodie Comer. I think she's really good, particularly in the last third of the movie. Um, and and Nicole Holofcener writes that section, and you can sense a, a desire to give the character a bit more personality and dimension than maybe you'd see in, a, in another film of this era about a, a, woman, a character like this. But I, I did. There's still just a certain element of everything being engineered to this point, and I think it's a little bit hamstrung by that, where she can only really play these big, mostly tragic moments. I mean, she gets to, she gets one funny moment um, that we were talking about, Rebecca, where there's a scene where Adam Driver's character uh, kisses her that's played over and over again. And in the first mm-hmm. version, um, you know, she's really into it. And then in her version, she's really not. And like, she gets to play those subtleties um, in, a, in an interesting way. But beyond that, um, I, I think she just has to do too much of the script's work to sort of telegraph where it's going and how it's evolving. And she also just gets to have less fun than the men, which is, in my opinion, a big problem.
4: I think if there was a way that there was a movie where it was one third the male perspective and then you just got to watch Jodie Comer like really dig into a character and uh, for the other two thirds, that might have been interesting. But this is not that movie. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. David, I really enjoyed your interview with Nicole Center that uh,
0: people can read now talking about writing this movie and how she was just like, yeah, it must have sucked to live back then. I really just tried to think as hard as I could about how horrible this woman's life would have been. (laughs) And I completely agree. Like I I would have no nostalgia for that period at all. But it did make me excited to see. And I think from the whole concept of having her on board, like Nicole Hollisenter, who has written all of these really practical, funny women, what she would do in the context of something like that. So it, it seems like you can see bits of that shine through, even if it's not as much of it as we would like.
5: Absolutely. And I think if she got more space, uh, exactly what Rebecca said, I think it could have made for a really interesting um, exercise as it stands. It's a nice contrast to what comes before it. And she de- her, her voice definitely does shine through. Um, there's a lot of little, little details that I, I really only picked up on because I spoke to her before I watched it. And so I was able to see where she was trying to do those things. But um, yeah, lots of research. And the dialogue, she just really kind of ran with it and and tried to craft the character from scratch, basically, because there wasn't much on Marguerite beyond the circumstances of which are depicted in the film.
0: Uh, well, if you're looking for a movie with, that centers women, might I recommend Bergman Island? How's that for a transition? Love that. <laughs> uh, yes. Basically as wildly uh, different scaled from Last Duel as you could possibly get. Um, but it is the new film from Mia Hansen Love. It played at Cannes earlier this year. It is out via IFC. Um, it stars Vicki Creeps and Tim Roth as this uh, pair of married filmmakers. And I don't know a ton about Mia Hansen Love's life, but I am told that this is pretty autobiographical from her experience. Um, and it also contains a movie within a movie uh, starring Mia Vastakowska, who I feel like we have not seen enough. And I'm really happy to see her in this. And then uh, she's opposite Anders Danielson Lee, who David you interviewed and is an extremely hunky Norwegian actor who's also <laughs> the worst person in the world and is also a doctor who saves lives. It's really unfair that he has all of that going for him. He it. does it all. Um, I greatly enjoyed Bergman Island. It's it's not like, um, it's not even a sunny movie, but it's very simple and empathetic and... Kind of takes you on a journey, both to this you know island in Sweden that where Ingmar Bird made a lot of his movies, and into the creative mind in a way that doesn't feel tortured, um, but still feels really serious at the same time. Uh, it's a it's a trickier balance to strike than you would think. And the entire mood and you know thought process of this movie was so appealing to me. Um, Rebecca, I think you caught up with it really recently, like I did, and you were pretty taken with it too, right?
4: Yeah, I I just watched it a few days ago, and I really loved it. I mean, talk about like accomplishing what you set out to do. The way she brings everything together, and I won't spoil anything, is, is just so beautifully done. And and um, Vicky Creeps is so good. I mean, you just can't take your eyes off her. And uh, she really leads that film. So I, I definitely enjoyed this film and would gush about it happily on and on
3: and on.
1: <laughs> Katie, you did say that Bergman Island is about the farthest thing imaginable from Last Duel, except Mia Vazikowska does kill a lot of horses in it, which <laughs> I was not expecting and I did not like.
5: She also doesn't love it when Adam Driver kisses her. Right. right. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Mia Hansen, love if people listening to this haven't seen some of her past films, like Things to Come or Eden, like she's just one of the best working. And um, this is a sort of more introspective, I mean, because it's so personal, a more introspective piece than maybe some of her other stuff has been, which for me, at least it took a little getting into the sort of the, the mood and, and the, sort of the scale of everything. But once you kind of just drift away on it, it's it's really great, and and you know actually even talking to Vicky Creeps for this podcast like made me appreciate it more. I'm going to see it again today, and as you'll hear in the interview I brought up with with Creeps after a very substantive conversation about other things, um, the wardrobes are fantastic in it. <laughs>
0: I was so glad that you brought that up because I've been thinking about it all the time, and I was like, "Oh, I'm just being shallow. Like, I just like made well, and her her clothes are all like made well, just like made even more elegant." But I was glad to hear that you were with me,
1: made <laughs> with elegant, me yeah, <laughs> exactly.
0: Uh-huh. Um, and David, you talked to Anders Danielson Lee and uh, Vicky Creeps as well, I think. Um, and so you've uh-huh. been kind of deeply deeply involved in all the people on this, <laughs> and you're a fan as well, right?
5: I'm 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 a part of this island by default. Um, yeah, no, I, <laughs> I, I I love this movie. I'm I'm a huge fan of her movies and i just think that the pairing of vicky and tim roth too is so fascinating and their styles are so different and they come at the the material so differently and it it makes for a really unique um coupling and vicky is the star of the show and she's just pretty amazing to watch i mean the tiniest of details like the way she brushes her teeth she has like this giggle fit that is so amazing uh, it's just like such a human on screen, and, mm-hmm. and such a full-bodied performance uh, that I could not stop watching. I would have watched another hour of it. She's just so present and uh, alive in the movie.
0: Yeah, and in your your piece with her, David, you kind of talked about how it, you know she broke out really big with Phantom Thread, and it feels like she's been like, a little uh, low key since then. Like we're kind of waiting for her next big film. And she, but she did a ton of projects all in a row, and now this one is the first one to come out. So it feels like we're going to get a lot more from her, which I am delighted to hear.
5: Yeah. The interesting thing about this movie is it was made years ago or shot years ago, and it had a lot of unusual um, stoppages. Like they had a lead actor pull out, like I think it was a week before filming was supposed to start, but then they proceeded to film anyway, just without the lead actor, you know, without the lead actor scenes. And then they did a whole other set of filming with Tim Roth on board, like a year later. And this was, All pre-pandemic, so um, the movie's been (laughs) three, four years in the making, just in terms of production.
4: It's also crazy to me that it was originally going to be Greta Gerwig as the Vicky role, and like I can't imagine. Owen Wilson was circling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the casting shuffles have been really interesting, but I'm so glad it was Vicky because I think she's so great in it. Greta would have been great, but. Well, uh, yeah, but different.
0: Yeah, d- yeah, d- great, but different. Although now I want to see like Greta Gerwig and Vicky Creeps on like a uh, like a road trip movie or something. I feel like that their energy together could be really great. <laughs> Don't and give I, away your ideas. for I, Well, no, I need Mia Hansen Love to pick it up. I can't do justice to it, but Mia Hansen Love could. Uh, well, then let's hear Richard's interview with our, our mutual object of adoration, Vicky Creeps.
1: Well, I have the distinct pleasure of having on the line with us today the great actor Vicky Creeps. Vicky, thank you for being here.
2: Hello. Thank you.
1: So uh, we're talking today about this lovely, kind of wistful and a little bit mysterious film, Bergman Island. But before we get into that film, um, I was wondering if we could maybe go back just a few years to the Phantom Thread year, which I'm sure everyone asks you about. But, you know, you had obviously been working for years uh, elsewhere you know, in Europe. And, and this was, I th- it feels like the first film that really introduced you to the broader international film world. Is, is that how you saw that experience or how you see it now in retrospect?
2: <laughs> yes, I, I, I would say so. I mean, I think I'm still, I'm still processing it.
1: <laughs> Did you have any expectations for what was going to happen when you were making that uh, Phantom Thread?
2: Well, as you can imagine, it was so overwhelming that I tried to stay out. I stayed out of uh, expectations. Um, I mean, I I did feel that Paul was artistically in my universe, you know, and when I met Daniel, I had the same thing. So, I mean, I think the three of us are made of the same tree, if that makes sense. Um, So that felt pretty natural. But then as soon as I understood how big it was in terms of, you know, just the body of work that both of these people have and 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 you know how people are going will see it or receive it and how big their expectations were you know to see both of them do a movie again after um, there will be blood um, i very quickly decided to forget all of my expectations and to just enter a zone where i would be empty enough and by this uh, present enough, you know, to, to take it. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. And, and, you know, you, you mentioned um, being in the same sort of artistic universe for you. How do you, how do you see that? What, what are your sort of goals with your art or what kind of projects interest you the most?
2: Um, I would say the integrity of uh, the director and also the project, you know, is it, Why is it there? You know, I mean, it doesn't always have to have like a political meaning. Whereas I think art is always political in one way or another, but um, where is it rooted? You know, does it have a true core? Is someone really willing to do this film? Does someone believe in it? Does someone have a vision? And then I'm totally okay with going with something that might be wrong. You know, I mean, you can always mistake a way and go down the wrong road, you know, and I'm very okay with people watching me fail. Uh, By the way, I believe that that's mostly what I do, um, that I'm just letting it happen. And I accept uh, the fact that probably someone is going to observe me fail, you know, if I don't succeed, which is (laughs) very probable. Um, So I think that's what I look into for work, you know. I mean, I don't even call it work. I don't even know what it is. And I think because I don't know what it is, that's why I do it. I feel like I'm like a scientist who's studying a strange plant and I go to all these different places and jungles and one day my plant will be called love and the other day it's called motherhood and then it's called relationship and you know and that's what I study when I'm an actor and um, I'm just mostly interested in the research and not so much about the outcome. I'm happy if I find something but it's really the searching that interests me. Which I think
1: speaks really well to uh, Bergman Island, you know, which is about a a writer-director versus an actor, but it's similarly an artist doing her research and and kind of mulling over her craft and her life and how they intersect. Um, Was that something that drew to the film? Was was the way that it, it reflects how you think about your art?
2: Yes, I mean, I see it more now. I mean, I'm very happy I talked to you after talking to many more people because I myself understand many things better now about the movie, Berkman Island. Uh, But yeah, I I guess it was what attracted me, but not consciously. I think it was really Mia, working with Mia was the first thing. And then it must've been that. I mean, you're right. It's an artist trying to find her way. And essentially it's a person trying to find her voice so you could say it's, it's a story of emancipation. Many women react to the film, um, and I understand why. But it's also just a person, you know, fighting her way to her inside, you know, trying to find her voice, her vision, and what she wants in life. Because, you know, not everybody's an artist, but we all have to find our way. And I think this is the one journey, the essential journey we do as people on this planet, um, more so today where you we're so distracted by, you know, the social media or politically what's going on. And, you know, it's really difficult. I find nowadays to, to hear your inner voice because there's so much noise around you. But I think Chris, um, in the film is really someone trying to honestly follow a path that first seems like it's not working, um, but because she follows a path that to her seems right but is not working and then she still goes through it, I think that makes it so beautiful and this is why in the end she does find something truthful and somehow her voice.
1: Yeah, I think that's something that's so interesting in that regard is that, you know, the film, for those listening who don't know, it takes place on an island where Igmar Bergwin, uh did a lot of his work and, and there's a museum dedicated to him. and. Um, And and so you have this filmmaker who's in process, in this place considering the sort of set legacy of a of a filmmaker who's died and who you know is never going to make another film. And it's kind of, and I think the way that those two things are in dialogue, the present and the kind of work of that, uh, and something that's so fixed, I think it's a really, I don't know, kind of almost moving way to look at the the continuum of artists, you know, being influenced by others.
2: Yes. And I, you know, the other day talking to Mia or listening her speak in an interview, I suddenly realized it's, it's about artists relating to other artists who are like these big references or idols or, um, and as my, my character in the movie puts it and says, well, I want an artist to be as good a person as an artist. Right. And there is this question. Um, but I, I realized suddenly it's also, it's even more than that. It's also, we all have these figures in our lives, like mostly the father figure, you know, being this over person. And we, um, I mean, our fathers often behave badly, but we like to excuse them because there are these father figures that we have to excuse or we have to love and accept. And we are brought up to, I mean, men and women, but I think more women, we are brought up to um, trying to understand the bad behavior of our fathers, in a way, you know, and to accept and and even call them back in and go back and say, "Is everything okay?" But it's a, but I forgive you. It's fine, you know. Um, I mean, at least in the past, many fathers were mostly, you know, not so present, and and um, and that's the same that she sees in in Bergman, you know. And Mia herself, as a director, said this to me. She's like, "I don't know why I love his work so much." when I know that he behaved so badly as a father, you know, or didn't really play a good father role and figure in his life. And it struck me how true that is to so many of us in our private life, how we must learn to let go of this behavior we have towards um, these great figures we have in our lives that we try to understand and try to forgive and accept and so I think um, the movie's also about this. It's emancipation also from, from these things that have put around us, like our father or our grandfather, or the family we've been uh, you know, we, we, we've been born into, or the structures surrounding us or our job. and we think we have to please them or you know, forgive them or um, accommodate them. But by doing so, we lose our own voice and we lose our own way. And I think that's what's so beautiful about the movie, that it's not only about a woman and her husband or an artist and his work. It's really essentially a person trying to find his way in this in this in this crazy world.
1: Yeah, and, and these are big themes. And and yet something I always have loved about Mia Hansen loves films is that um, they can be about big things, but she does it in very subtle ways and naturalistic kind of style and um even in something like Eden which is such a big loud yes. kind of propulsive movie there is still at its core this very human intimate portrait and i i'm curious as an actor working in that vein where you know you have these sort of rambling scenes and and the film is building toward a sort of bigger conclusion but in the moment it just feels very slice of life is that a does it feel natural to be that natural when you're when you're on set <laughs> to act that way
2: i think my job is to find a way to get there and I think the, the way I found was, is the way of, of, you know, it sounds so simple, but vulnerability or something, you know, like, I think at one day I, ex, I accepted in my life, even before being an actress, I will never be the perfect person I, I want to be, you know, or this perfect doesn't even exist, you know, so I might as well sit in the boat I was given and, you know, and sail my boat without thinking of, you know, having another one. And, uh, And I accepted people seeing me, and as I said, watch me fail. So what I do is really accept to fail in every, every moment. I never really know what I'm doing. I mean, I know my lines, and I know I can only move from the chair to the bed or whatever. But on the inside of it all, I never know how I look. I never know how this is going to be. You know, I, I don't have this perception of myself. Am I going to look cool or am I going to look funny or am I going to be, because I'm really on the inside accepting it to become whatever it will be and then to be judged, which I find the, the, the most difficult part. I think the biggest work as a as an actor is how to get rid of your fear of being judged, you know, in order mm. to be truly present. And, Every actor has a different way, I think.
1: Yeah, it was shedding that self consciousness. I mean, that's that's probably a constant process. It's not like one day it clicks and it's gone forever, I would imagine. Uh yeah. you can, it has I'm sure it's also different for every project in, in some ways.
2: It is different, but it's but it's also like you must imagine, it's like if you let down your trousers once <laughs> it helps because you know, all your friends you have seen it anyway. You know what I mean? Like it's not there of course there's not this click. But deep down inside, it feels like there is a switch we can decide to, uh, yeah, to switch or whatever. And and then it, from there, it becomes this journey. I think.
1: As you've been on that journey in your own career, and you know, new opportunities have presented themselves in a variety of genres. Is there, do you feel something evolving in you? Like, do you feel like you take bigger risks, or you know, in in recent years, or anything, mm-hmm. any change that you've noticed in that regard?
2: Oh yeah, I noticed a big change and I think uh, Bergman Island is is really also showing that. I mean, you can you can see Chris, but you can see Vicky also trying to find her voice. Uh, this was the first movie I did after Phantom Thread, and it was pretty overwhelming, as you can imagine. I mean, doing it was already something, but as long as I was in it, I was in it. And as I said, I felt very connected to Paul and Daniel, but when I came off the movie, I had become this actress, as you say, that suddenly people knew, you know, which was not the case before. But I also, it felt like I couldn't go home to where I came from. I mean, I did, but I could feel something had changed in me and I couldn't go back exactly to what I had left, but I didn't belong to anything new. And I didn't see myself pack my bags and go and live in LA. So I was really pretty lost, I think. And then i found back my strength but really on my own in my own way so i realized that now when i when i work i have um i'm more i'm still me but i'm not so scared of being me you know i have accepted that you know i'm i'm a little different and i come from a place that is very different than anything that you imagine actors are you know i i, I was basically always talking to trees you know <laughs> right. that's, how, that's how dreamy I was and then suddenly I was doing this movie and then there was this press tour and these people talking to me and you know and I, I and all these lights on me and I didn't know what to do and uh, so then accepting that I am who I am and I will never change and that that's okay I found a strength that now permits me to I dare more maybe you know yeah I think it it's the same, but it's more like I will go. Like I I did this movie with Barry Levinson, and there was a um, a scene where I I didn't see how my my character could do that because it's about a a man who was in the camps, and my grandfather was in the camps, so I know this, and I know how horrible some of these people became afterwards, just because they were full of the trauma and they couldn't you know get over it so fast, and uh, so this was after you know. Over half of the movie where we see how horrible he can be to his family, if you want. And then he's telling one one more of those horrible stories of what he's done in the past. And my character, his wife, was supposed to hug him in the end. And I said, there's no way I can see how I can hug this man now, you know, even if I love him. But, you know, after what he's done and what he just said. So Barry said, "Uh, "Okay, just sit down. Oh, stay seated. So I stayed seated. I decided then to not tell my partner, Ben Foster. And he was surprised, which, you know, made him angry in a way in the character, but he stayed in the the zone. And then from there, I just sent him, I threw him the line of the next scene, which was supposed to be at another point in time, another room, another time of the day, uh, shooting another time. And I just carried on with that scene. And he, because he's, he's, I think, we're a little bit the same kind of actors. He was also just in it. And of course he knew what scene that was. So he just continued and went on with the next line. And we went on in another scene. And it became one scene. And it became, I think, the core of the relationship of that movie. And what I want to say is that I remember very well that I almost didn't dare to ask Barry Levinson to not hug him. Because I felt that, you know, who am I? I cannot, you know, change the scene. I cannot change the line. But I felt it so strongly in me. And that was when I realized, okay, something has changed because now I I have the courage. I dare to go and be who I am, you know, and stand to to what I believe is true.
1: I mean, that's a a, a wonderful kind of self- assurance to come into at any age but you and I are almost exactly the same age I'm a couple of months older than you um but um I, I feel like especially in your 30s is this I mean you know at least yeah. for me like it's this kind of searching phase that you thought at least I did like oh my 20s are going to be that and then my 30s will be more settled and I found that to be completely not the case um yeah. so to arrive at those moments whether it's in personal life or in career or both where you feel a little bit like you know yourself better I mean that's quite a gift
2: yeah, I, I think it's wonderful to get older. And I, I love my wrinkles and really I'm like, oh finally I can see some of my life written on my face, you know, because I was always such a baby face. I I, I didn't know why people were, you know, why people love that. I, I really don't get it because I love seeing the story behind a face. Also I don't get why people wear makeup actually, you know, because there's nothing more touching than like I'm not with women, but even as a woman, I I can understand the tenderness of a woman and, and, and how it can, how lovely it can be. And if I see, you know, a woman of a certain age without makeup, who just, let's say, just came out of bed or whatever, standing in front of me, I find nothing more moving and, and touching and sensitive and sexy even, you know, and I, I really don't understand why we avoid it so much.
1: Yeah, I mean, I suppose there is something, you know, not it's not just aesthetic; it's also kind of, you know, that fear of mortality and whatnot, um, which uh, is something that you uh, d- kind of stared at headfirst in in uh, in old this summer, which yeah. was, uh, uh, you know, that that's that feels like it must have been a whole other kind of different wild experience because, um, as far as I'm aware, that was that like your first kind of. Real horror film. I mean, I guess it's not really a horror oh, yeah. film, but yeah, um, That's,
2: it, it, it's not only my real horror first horror film, but it's even I would say my first Hollywood film because you yeah. know, Phantom Thread and the way Paul works is very European, um, and we were in London, and then Barry Levinson was was shooting in Budapest and was you know I was telling the story of my grandmother, if you like, so it was very close to me, and here I was suddenly on this full on. You know, as you can picture it, you know, Hollywood set with all these big lights and, and green screens and hundreds of people running around. And, and you know, so um, that was really something. That's why I did it also, because I'm always intrigued by new things and I, I'm i always too curious to see something I've, I've, I haven't seen before. But that was really, I would say, for me personally, not easy because, you know, the way I am. I have to keep my own sense of integrity and my own sense of truth inside of me as an actor or as a person. It's the same. It goes both ways. So when I'm on a set like this, which is so big and so loud, it's very difficult to find the quiet where I can create my little tone and my voice, which I would like to give to the character, you know, or my truth. And uh, But I cannot do otherwise. I will not give up. unless I have it, you know. So I always remember how I was standing on the beach and surrounded by this huge machine. I mean, you can call it a machine. It's a machine, you know, wanting to bring this little sensitivity um, to this kind of movie. And I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. And so I started turning to the ocean. I always remember. And it's so funny how when we work, it's always a sense of like how what is the solution you will find this time? You know, in Phantom Thread, I had to find a way how to work with this genius as a director and then also this, I would call it always a monster, but it's like in a positive way. I mean this overfigure of an actor, you know who is there with all his his method acting, which I n- never knew what it was, you know. And this like monument, that's the word, you know, not monster monument how do I find a way not only to work around it, but to work with it and even to dance with it? And he was the same, you know, how could I find a way to work not around the machine, not against the machine, but with the machine and dance with it? So I I realized the only thing on that beach that I could relate to in my sensitivity was nature. So I started taking all my lines of the ocean, you know, on on my inside, like all the lines I... I would replace them with, you know, love and, and, and all these things I believe in in life, you know, <laughs> if that makes sense. Does it that does. make sense? That I'm saying? Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: I think that, <laughs> you know, the you know actors I've spoken to who work, you know, kind sort of more like you either in Europe or an in independent film and, and they do a big Hollywood thing, it, it feels like it can be really easy to get lost. And so I think anything yeah. you can do to sort of find yourself and find, you know, that the job that you have to do, I, I think, you know, uh, whatever works really <laughs> with that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that goes back to your question. So yes, I have changed, you know, now I'm, now I find my ways. I,
1: yeah. Was that experience, you know, as kind of big and like and the, the machine is, would you re-enter that machine anytime soon again? Or do you, think you <laughs> want to re- ret- return to the, the other way of things?
2: Well, I think again, it would have to make me curious, you know, if if it's something that gets my attention because it's like, Interesting in what it wants to tell the society, like old, you know. To me, was about telling the society, you know, guys, where are you running to? You know, stop running, sit down, look at the beach, or look at wherever you are and the person next to you, and acknowledge it, and and how lucky you are to have what you have, and stop comparing yourself, you know, stop trying to be better, stop, you know, doing this other yoga class and drinking this other mineral, whatever juice bump thing you know or eat this other superfood or you know so that to me was very important that it had it was carrying this very important message for me for today's life and today's people so if if a machine like this carries either the, the right message or you know grabs my attention because someone is trying something new or artistically or I think yes you know I don't have I don't carry these I don't have these things in my head of like this is what I'm doing and this is not what I'm doing. And I'm this kind of actor, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm no kind of actor. I don't even know if I would call myself an actor. Yeah. I mean, acting is my, it's my profession, but it's really more than that really.
1: A lot of what you're, you're talking about with respect to, you know, that sort of staying present and and, and reactive um, when you're shooting something, it it sounds a lot like working in theater, which I know you've done, um, mm-hmm. and because you you obviously have to be present because it's just you and the other actors on yeah. stage and there's no cut um is that is that a medium that you hope to keep returning to or where are you where are you uh, with respect to theater these days
2: yes i it's like this sad love story i had to leave behind no really i i really hope i can do theater again it's where i come from and you know it's just because i have two children i have to look after and end the, the job so there's really little time to either work on my career and like consciously say, so now I'm going to do that. You know, I also, I'm all, I feel like I'm more like reacting to what's coming to me. And right now there were like many very interesting movies. And as I said, I'm the scientist and I, as long as I haven't found my answer, I will continue uh, my research, which I find in movies so interesting because if I compare it to theater, you know, what is for me so interesting in movies and why I think I ended up there is, is the camera really, you know, to me, it's a phenomenon I, I've never understood. And I think I will never do because how does it work that I, Vicky, in some present moment in time, like on stage, right? I, I go through this moment and I, I have this real emotions and real tears coming, right? And then there's this machine, supposed to be a machine, but it feels like a person too, like a living eye, but it is a machine, capturing with light this real emotion onto some kind of support. You know, it used to be film, now it's like a numeric, digital. And this support travels, like, I don't know, far to be, if it was film, developed. And this developed then... You have it on some sort of support, which you then travel again to another place, and it goes into a projector, where light again, through the projector, projects this thing now onto a screen, and the screen projects it off onto our eyes. And what do we do? We cry. So, and a real emotion I had somewhere on the other side of the planet, maybe one year ago, was captured by all these machines and essentially light, you know, and it's you know reprojected and then captured again with my eye or someone's eye and then it provokes the same kind of feeling i was having when the machine was capturing it i mean To me that's like it's it's insane right
1: it really it really is i mean you know to think about it in all those component parts and and just um you know i think that as viewers can sometimes have a relationship where the the movie has always existed exactly like as it is you know but of course from the filmmaking perspective it is all those just random moments of light being captured and then months later you know uh, it's an incredible process
2: it's incredible and that's what i mean so this is the enigma I feel I haven't understood yet and I probably never will, which is why I am still so intrigued and full of um, lust, you know, for film. But yes, of course, I miss theater so much because that's where I come from. And I, I always projected my, if I ever projected myself at one point in my life, it was in acting school when I had my first job at a theater, I thought, okay, I'm going to be a theater actor. That's maybe... You know, what I would have, and then maybe directing in theater, which I did then shortly, but never film. But then I fell upon it, or it fell upon me, I don't know. (laughs) And since I'm so intrigued by it that I can't stop, you know, going for it.
1: Well, I you know I, I speak for many, I'm sure, when I say I can't wait to see what you do next. Um, I know you have uh, the Levinson film, The Survivor, coming up, um, which I'm mm-hmm. I mean, very excited to see. I also, before I let you go, um, I wanted to mention, this is a very shallow point, just to... Uh, the clothing in Bergman Islands, your wardrobe,
2: <laughs> is <Yeah>. really
1: stunning. <laughs> like, yeah. I wanted to buy everything. <laughs> but oh, like, wow. yeah, I mean, they just really, I don't know, I, I, I don't really have a question. I'm just remarking that um, it's just a... F- I have
2: an answer for you.
1: Oh, you do? Okay.
2: Yeah, yeah, I have an answer for you because it goes with what I said before of like the, the makeup and stuff. I think we lost our way somewhere. In, in all these past years I don't know what happened but somehow we got lost in, in the commercial side of things and uh, so the makeup is the same like clothes and I think why you like the clothes in the movie is because they're comfortable. they have been chosen because they're comfortable and not because they make me look nice I'm not saying they don't make me look nice I hope they do and if you say you like them then that's what happened but but really I can tell you that the process of finding those clothes, was really trying to find things that you're most comfortable in as a woman and not what you wear to please, you know.
1: That really shows, and that's exactly what it is. Now that you say it, I realize it's that there's an ease to (laughs) that. There's an ease to them. You don't look bound up by anything. It's very very yeah. comfortable um well i hope that is further uh, encouragement for those listening to Seabergman island to heaven um uh because you know it's great work it's uh, I'm, I'm actually i'm getting teary now thinking about the, the final shot um so uh vicky thank you for your work in it and thank you for taking the time to talk to us i really appreciate it
2: thank you for the conversation That does it for this
0: week's show. Uh, We'll be back next week. In the meantime, you can read uh, Richard writing about The Last Duel. You can read David talking to the people behind Bergman Island. You can read Joy and Sonia's pieces on the Iatsi strike. Rebecca, you've got a great piece this week about the participant media turning 15 and their uh, big Oscar hopeful flea. So much good stuff. I'm sure I forgot to plug something. And you can uh, subscribe to Still Watching to hear Richard and Sonia on Succession. Um, You can also follow us on Twitter at Men And on our own, I'm Katie Rich. And Richard...
1: At Richie Creeps.
0: <laughs> and Rebecca. <laughs> at Becca M. Ford. And David.
5: Uh, David Canfield 97.
0: You can also sign up to receive text from us or text us back at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-4203. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs.
1: And this week's award for the best description of the new Academy Museum-esque studio that we're building to record Little Gold Men goes to Katie Rich.
0: There's a large oil painting of Judy Dunch on the wall.